and welcome back to the Grindhouse Girls podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Katie. My co-host is Brittany, and this is a podcast about many strange and spooky movies. We cover a lot of independent movies and a lot of horror movies, and we do want to caution before starting the podcast that listener discretion is advised, and a lot of subject matter we cover is not appropriate for children and can be quite sensitive. So if that sounds like something that's up your alley, keep on listening. If not, thanks for stopping by and on to the podcast. Hello. Hi, this is Grindhouse Girls Podcast. I'm Katie. I'm Brittany. And we're going to discuss Birdman or the unexpected virtue of ignorance, which apparently Pop Quiz was the first uh, Academy Award Best Picture winner to have uh, quotation, uh, not quotations, parentheses in its oh. title. It was a lot of firsts. I just kept seeing things, but firsts that weren't really that a big a big deal. Anyways, Brittany's going to tell us what the uh, plot is, and we hope that everybody's doing well and having a good time. I've been watching Mr. Robot all day, again, because it's a really good show. And I watched Birdman for the first time yesterday. And I think, Brittany, had you seen this before? Oh, yeah. So I actually, um, and Katie probably is tired of me saying this, um, but a lot of the contemporary movies we're talking about, I, I, it's like, I saw a lot of movies when I was a kid, but once I could drive, I mean, if I could drive to the movie theater and see a movie, I was driving to the movie theater and seeing a movie. And so I got to see Birdman in theater. Obviously, there was a lot of Oscar talk, um, buzzing about it so i was like if we're talking the oscars i'm gonna go see it so i got to see this one in theaters and it was really awesome and there's a scene i would love to talk about um a little bit later once we head into this spoiler territory um so birdman's 2014 movie um is directed by alejandro e and i want to make sure i'm pronouncing mr alejandro's yeah he's got a middle initial in there it's alejandro g e naritu or naritu Inarutu. Inarutu. Sorry if we mispronounced your name, sir. Uh, he's a pretty good director. He's done a lot of, not a lot of popular movies, but he's done quite a few that yeah. people would know. Like 21 Grams, and he did The Revenant, too, with Leonardo, the, the one that finally won Leonardo DiCaprio, his coveted Oscar. So, which yes. I still have not seen. I've seen parts of it, but I haven't actually sat down because I missed it in theaters. And <laughs> Revenant is like a heavy movie. It is. And I gotta be in the right mood to watch it. Maybe um, we'll maybe we'll review the Revenant. Yeah. I'm willing to. I like anything with well, not anything with Leonardo DiCaprio, but he's pretty entertaining to watch. Anyways, Brittany, sorry I interrupted you. Go ahead. You're good. You're good. And I feel like uh, Alejandro is Alejandro is uh, one of those directors that he seems to have that underlying theme of ambiguity in all of his movies. So he's a and I what I love. There's a quote specifically that he said about this film where he said that um, there's as many different ways to interpret this movie as there is uh, seats in a movie theater. And I'm like, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. And there's a lot of stuff going on in this movie. But basically, the plot is about uh, Riggins Thompson. He is an actor who's trying to make a comeback by directing and starring in this Broadway play he wrote called uh, The Things We Talk About When We Talk About Love. Uh, he which, had played- which, by the way, I didn't know this, but is based on an actual like poem by an actual person named Raymond Carver who wrote a bunch of poetry and short stories. And also, one of his stories um, is what that um, Will Ferrell serious movie, Everything Must Go, is based on. So, I didn't really know about Raymond Carver. I felt really stupid. I thought it was like a, I thought it was like a Tennessee Williams, like, substitute. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, he's a, he was a real person. Okay. And then I went, looked up, and I was like, oh, okay. Like, I was familiar with his stuff, but only because I didn't know I was familiar. But yes, it's a... He's he's basing it on a poem or a short story by Raymond Carver. Yeah, and it's really cool because I didn't know this until after the film. And don't feel stupid because it's it's one of those names that it's like once you start reading his work, you're like, okay, I am familiar with this gentleman. But you, it's not. I don't feel like he's an author I got to read in high school or even college. So I would definitely say don't feel stupid. He is a great American author, but I feel like this movie opened up maybe more people to know about him um but yeah and so it's like a you know and the thing is the play you know um that Rickens is directing it's like different scenes are taken from different stories in that book 
which I thought was really, really cool, too. So, um, but of course, Riggins was in a movie uh, called Birdman. Uh, that was like a series of movies in the 90s, which um, there's a lot of really interesting things. So obviously, Michael Keaton. A lot of parallels. Yeah. A lot of parallels between Birdman and Michael Keaton's Batman. Mm-hmm. And Michael Keaton is my favorite, personally, my favorite Batman of all the Batman. Sorry, Christian Bale. I like Michael Keaton's interpretation better. So yeah. it was, I was like, well, of course they picked Michael Keaton. Cause, and by the way, they set the Birdman movie, the last one, the same year that the last Batman movie, Batman Returns, with Michael Keaton as Batman, was like the same yeah. year. I was like, ah, very smart. I oh, like that. I, so he's, I love so he's, it. He's put in this play because he was like a comic book actor and he wants to be a real actor. Yeah, exactly. Like he's like, I am doing it for the craft. Like, he's really, at this point in his life, he's really trying to get away from the Birdman persona. Um, but, of course, it's something that follows him around, which would, which is more of a discussion we'll probably get into, too. Um, yeah. But he um, he's in this play. He has, uh, so very early on in the movie, probably within the first 10 minutes, there is a light that falls on one of the actors. And um, he is replaced with Edward Norton's character who I believe is named Mike, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, his name right? is Mike. I have all the characters I'll, I'll go through once we put a short synopsis on. Yeah. Basically, he just wants this play to do well, and he's and it's like, and he slowly unravels as the play goes on. So there's Regan. It's spelled Regan, Regan, but everyone pronounces it Reagan, like, like President Reagan. But mm-hmm. um, he's the Michael Keaton character. He played Bir- Birdman, and he's trying to be a real actor. And basically the reason he wants to do a play based on a Raymond Carter piece is because when he was first starting out as an actor, Raymond Carver wrote him a review on a cocktail napkin and and told him he did a really good job. And that's what made him want to be a real actor and take it seriously. And um, he's divorced, um, but he's still close with his ex-wife. And his daughter just got out of rehab and she is his assistant and he's dating one of the actresses in the play and has been for like two years and basically uh michael keaton also plays birdman who starts out as a voice and it's he's kind of like uh reagan's reagan's uh subconscious but he's really the worst parts so he's got like an internal conflict but they bring it in this magical realism which i looked up on wikipedia because I was trying to figure out what kind of movie this was. Because the movie's very weird because it starts out very realistic. And then there's these fantasy moments. And they don't really define whether the fantasy moments are actually happening. Or if they're really, like, fantasy moments. Yeah, and basically magical realism is just magical things happening in a, happening in a realistic story. And it's kind of a weird one um and then there's sam his sister his sister <laughs> there's sam his daughter and she's played by emma stone which i'm sure a lot of people know emma stone from my personal favorite of hers is super bad um but she was also in the favorite which i've been dying to watch and haven't watched yet and yes. the help and then la la land which i didn't like la la land that much but i think she did a really she did a competent job acting wise in la la land and she actually got an oscar for that and basically she's like I, I kind of hated her at first, and then I ended up liking her, because she's she just got out of rehab, she is trying to stay clean, but she also, like, puts all the blame on her substance abuse to her dad, and she starts having a relationship with Mike, uh, the Edward Norton character, and he's like, well, it's, she basically blames everything in her life on her dad, he's like, well, what did he do that was so bad? She's like, well, he wasn't around, but then he would try to make it up to me. And it's like, yeah, a lot of people aren't around, but they do try to make it up to their kids. So she kind of, like, figures out he wasn't such a bad dad after all. Wasn't perfect, but he wasn't that bad. And she kind of starts taking responsibility for her own actions and starts, like, being a better person. And uh, she becomes more responsible than her dad is, honestly. And then so I ended up liking her, but at first I was like, okay, she's she was kind of just a bitch at first. But she's also, like, this realistic voice of reason for her dad who is also uh, the other voice of reason, which I'll go, she's not as in the show, but I was really excited to see her. 
Um, there's his ex-wife, Sylvia, who's played by Amy Ryan, who plays Holly Flack in The Office. And she plays his ex-wife and Sam's mom, who's very, like, they're not married anymore, but she seems to actually deeply care about him. So I think she's probably one of my favorite characters because she was just, like, the voice of reason. Like, when bad things happen to him, she's still there for him, even though they're not romantically involved anymore. And then there's Mike, who is every pretentious actor I've ever worked with in my entire life. He's played by Edward Norton, who I adore. I love Edward Norton. Me too. Um, Me too. (laughs) I mean, if anyone thinks he's a bad actor, you don't know acting. He's a really good actor. Um, He's also, in my opinion, very attractive, but I think I've already gone through that. Anyways, he was in American History X, Red Dragon, and Fight Club, among a ton of other things. Oh, yeah. Um, But basically, Mike is like a theater actor, and he's really popular in New York on stage, but isn't like popular nationally or internationally like uh, Reagan's character is. And he gets offered the job by Leslie, who he's dating. Leslie's one of the, who's played by Naomi Watts. She's one of the lead actors in the play and um he's kind of dating her casually but I guess he's living with her because she tells him at some point to take his stuff out of her apartment um he's he's like a method actor I guess he doesn't actually say that but like there's a scene in the play within the movie that they're drinking gin on stage and if you've never done an actual stage play when you think it's gin, it's water. And when you think it's whiskey, it's sweet tea. It's super unprofessional to drink on stage. So that was the first, like, red flag with Mike. So he does that. He wants everything to be realistic. He tries to actually have sex with someone on stage because it's real. And yeah. he's very talented. So everyone kind of lets him, I guess everyone's let him kind of be um, an asshole for years. But it's finally kind of catching up with him. And apparently... His character is actually based on an exaggerated version of Edward Norton himself, because yeah. apparently Edward Norton isn't the easiest person to work with, which I didn't know. I was like, maybe that's why he doesn't do as many movies as you would think he would, because maybe he's just kind of like people can be really talented. But if they are a pain in the ass to deal with, nobody wants to hire them. In America, he um, he tried to direct scenes of American History X and him and the director actually would get on onset arguments so i think definitely i think loosely these characters are all playing versions of themselves which i i just think is hilarious and i even was watching um this little uh thing where aleandro was talking about directing a scene and edward norton was kind of budging in about like his take on the scene and aleandro was like okay you're you're being your character and so like so it was happening on this movie a little bit too yeah, like, the first scene you see with his character, he has only looked through the script, like, once, and he already has everybody's lines memorized. And they're like, don't you need a script? And he's like, no, no, I'm fine. It's it's a gift and a curse. It's fine. He's very good at what he does, but he's also very pretentious. Um, and then there's Leslie, who I've already mentioned, who's played by Naomi Watts. And she, um, if you haven't seen Naomi Watts, she was in Mulholland Drive, and then she was also in the American version of Funny Games and The Ring, which I think everyone's seen The Ring. Um, but basically, she genuinely wants the show to go well. She's always wanted her career to be on Broadway, and um, she's like, it's a dream come true for her. So she's working really hard at trying to make this play works, and she's the one that introduces Mike. Like they've been dating for a while, and he hasn't been able to like. Uh, perform for her and uh, she gets really close with her other co-star who's Laura who's played by Andrea and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right but Riseborough or Riseborough not really sure how you pronounce her last name but she's Mandy from Mandy if you've seen Mandy I was like it's Mandy like I knew she was in Birdman because when I watched Mandy I was like why is this lady's face so familiar and I was like, oh, she was in Birdman. I've definitely seen her in commercials for Birdman. And she was also apparently in Nocturnal Animals, which I've seen, but I can't remember what character she was, which either. is a really good movie. Um, but she plays uh, Laura, who is dating uh, Michael Keaton's character, and she's also in the play. And she seems like a genuinely nice person, but apparently uh, he hasn't been the best boyfriend to her. Like, he hasn't been super loving 
And like she thinks she's expecting in the beginning of the show and she's all excited because she really wants to be a mom and then it kind of goes south. The relationship kind of goes south. But it's not like the main focus of the play. Yeah. Of the movie, I mean. I keep trying to call it a play because there's a play within a play. Um, It's really like a minor point, but she does seem like a genuinely nice person. And like uh, he hasn't really been nice to her. Not a jerk, but he's just kind of too wrapped up in his own shit. And then there's the only other person, two people that are worth mentioning are Jake, who's played by Zach Galifianakis. And like the only movie I've ever seen him in where I wasn't annoyed by him. It's like him and Jack Black get on camera and I'm like, oh, just tone it down. But I'm mostly thinking of the Hangover movies. Like I hate his character in the Hangover. It is really funny. But like if he was a real person, I would not like him. But I do love Between Two Ferns. If you've ever seen Between Two Ferns where he... Apparently there's a movie coming out of Between Two Ferns. Um, he, I, I do like his, when he does dry sense of humor, I tend to like him. When he does like popular humor, I tend to not like him because it's like too much. Um, but he plays, I was trying to figure out what their relationship is. He's Michael Keaton's like best friend. Yeah. Obviously not really. And he's also, I think his agent I and his like lawyer. Yeah. And uh, so he's he has like everything writing on this, as does Michael Keaton's character, who's basically put all of his money into this play. And I think it's implied that he's living at the theater too, uh, Michael Keaton's character, because he put all his money in there. So that's really sad. Um, But apparently it's not the first time that's happened before. And then the only other person of note is Tabitha, who's this critic, whose review basically makes or or breaks any play in New York City. Uh, She's played by Lindsay Duncan, who... The only thing I've seen her in, I think, is Sherlock, but her face was very familiar to me. So I think she's she's been in a lot of British shows, but she's a big stage actress. And basically, she doesn't like uh, Reagan because he's a popular actor. Obviously, somebody really hates critics because whoever wrote this script, sorry, uh, really doesn't like critics because basically Michael Keaton's character rips her a new one at some point. Um, there's a lot of minor characters that pop in and pop out and most people are played by actual like Broadway theater actors which I found hilarious I was like I knew a bunch of these people by sight but I didn't necessarily know their names I was like oh I've seen them in something like a lot of people that do background work but actually are pretty popular stage actors which I thought was really cool and the whole show play movie whatever you want to call it the whole movie is filmed like a play which I thought added some realism to it they did long cuts and long takes so basically there's only 16 edits in the whole movie yeah and uh if anybody messed up they'd have to start all over again which is you know very similar to rehearsing a play so I appreciated how much work had to go into it especially if you are a movie actor because no offense to movie actors but you usually take short takes, and so you'll do, like, sometimes just a line a day. Sometimes you'll do, like, a whole scene, but the way they edit movies, I remember this from acting for film class, um, <laughs> our professor would be like, you know, sometimes there's not even another person sitting there when you film it. You just film your lines, and that happens a lot. So it did add a lot of realism, and they, there was a lot of steady cam. So basically, like, the first scene starts with Michael Keaton in his dressing room, and then they move all the way on to, like, the stage where they're rehearsing and stuff. And it's it's very interesting. It adds, uh, it adds a sense of realism to it. And it also, like, I feel like the tension gets ratcheted up a lot more than it would regularly. Because the actual actors are physically going through what their characters are going through. And sometimes I feel like the way movies are filmed, you don't really feel that tension. Like... And there's only there was only one part. Apparently, people did mess up all over the place with their lines, but the only person I noticed it was one time Zach Galifianakis was trying to say something, and he like fumbled on a word, and I was like, "Why did they leave that in?" But probably it was just the best take they had, I would assume. Um, I don't know if you if you noticed that. What was the line? I thought I wrote the line down. Sometimes I think about how awkward I am and I stumble over my words when I'm really frustrated or like maybe excited. And so sometimes I don't think about that as being a fumble. I think of it like, okay, maybe that's like an acting choice. So no, uh, no, I think this one was real because it was when he was talking about Saudi Arabia. 
he starts trying to say the word Arabia and he can't get it out. And I was like, and you can see it in his face that he's fucked up, but he just kept going. (laughs) But to be fair, the character's lying in that line. Like he's, the character's lying. So if you were making up a lie, it's completely plausible that you would fumble on what you were saying. So I'm okay with them keeping that in. It made sense, but I could tell, I was like, I'm pretty sure that's not how he was supposed to say that, but that's fine. It's fine. It's theater. It's never the same every time. But yeah, um, did you? I'm guessing you liked this movie, Brittany. Oh yeah. Since you've seen it before, I really liked it. I, uh, the ending didn't. I didn't hate the ending because it's very ambiguous. I guess we're gonna go into spoilers. Um, but yeah, you should definitely go see this movie. It's. I had to rent it on Amazon Prime, so unfortunately, I don't think it's streaming anywhere right now for free. But it was only like four dollars for me to rent it on Amazon Prime, so. It's not too expensive, and it is, it's a enjoyable film. Yeah. I pretty much went in blind, and I think that's a good way to go in with this movie, because it is really, really good. Yeah. But if you, if you know what's going to happen, I think it would be less fun. I think everybody who was on the writing team probably has worked in theater before, mm-hmm. uh, because it was very realistic, and... Uh, it brought to mind the whole discussion I've had with people about method acting. And there's a whole misconception about what method acting really is. I think they got it. I mean, they kind of had the Hollywood version of it. Yeah. Because method acting isn't, it's not what people say it is. It's not uh, really getting drunk on stage. I would call that realism. I wouldn't call that method acting. Method acting is imagining a circumstance, visualizing it, and taking yourself there mentally. And there's a whole Chekhov's gun thing going off in this pl- in this movie because they there's a, so in the play they don't really get into the plot too much of the play except that it's about love and it takes place. I guess they're all playing different scenes like different characters in different scenes and what it is is that you get like little snippets of it so it's like they're having a discussion at that dining table and they're kind of changing stories it's changing stories about what love is and Naomi Watts's character says that she had a boyfriend that was abusive and mm-hmm. so that that last scene that last scene is like a flashback because she mentions so her abusive- him shooting himself yeah. yeah so yeah but it's just funny because I he's playing multiple characters the wig is just really bad I don't yeah. know if that was a conscious choice or not, but it's a, he puts on this terrible wig. And I think one of the funniest scenes is, so Edward Norton's character, the, the first rehearsal they have, one of the stagehands is like, he, uh, he, Michael Keaton goes up to one of the stagehands, like, hey, it's pr- going pretty well. She's like, yeah, Mike's interesting. I'm pretty sure he's drinking real gin on stage. And he's like, oh, shit. So he switches it back to water. And I think part of it is because Michael Keaton does have alcohol problems and he doesn't want to accidentally because he's also drinking in that scene and he doesn't want to accidentally drink so I think it's more of him being protective and so he switches it back to water and it's their first preview in front of like an audience so if you've never if you don't know anything about Broadway or professional theater they have previews like invited dress where you can pay to buy a ticket to watch basically dress rehearsals of the show and it helps get buzz for the theater and you actually have to buy a ticket. So invited dresses in non-professional theater, they don't usually charge for, but they do charge for previews. And it reminded me of when the two times I was in New York, one of the summers I was in New York was the summer um, Spider-Man into the dark or turn off the dark was happening. And that show crashed and burned because they were really, really ambitious where they were having all these like they had like five or six or ten different people playing spider-man so they could do all these really cool like actual acrobatics on stage but it ended up not being very safe and they ended up firing the original director who originated julie taymore who originated the lion king the broadway show that everybody loves has really cool puppetry and they ended up firing her and then somebody else took over i don't know if it was firing her or if it was just incidental but it got really dangerous and uh it just reminded me of that because everyone was seeing it in previews when I was there and they're like yeah that show sucks plus everyone keeps dying 
So no one actually died, though. Yeah, but there was like, a really serious injury. I think I remember. Really bad. Like, there was something in the news about, like, because, you know, Spider-Man, they, like, it's like he actually does web-slinging over the audience. And I think the web, the, the, the thing that was, like, web-slinging him broke, and he, like, fell. Like, the actor fell so many feet, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. I don't know if it's the same guy that got really hurt or if it's a different guy, but there is a video on, it's definitely on YouTube. It's it's in a bunch of, like, theater fails videos of him actually falling because somebody oh. was taping it. And uh, it's just, like, he's on a ledge and he drops and nothing catches him and he just goes. It's really, oh, it's very scary, but he did survive, so don't don't be too scared if you watch it, but it's pretty bad. Um, but it just reminded me of that story because so the first thing that happens, the first preview is Edward Norton gets pissed that his gin isn't on stage. And he's like, I need my methods. And I was like, oh, my God, shut up. It's like, this is what I need for my craft. He also requires a tanning bed, by the way, which I just found hilarious. I was just like, oh, my God, he is that actor. Oh, my God. So effing annoying. So he's really upset. And then the second preview... So Edward Norton's character is like horny and wants to have sex with anything with a vagina. And he's dating Leslie, but he's being an asshole to her and apparently can't get it up. And so he gets it up in the, sh- in the uh, scene when they're in bed together in the last scene of the show. And then he has like a hard on on stage and everybody laughs about it. Yeah. Um, and, and he tries to get her to have sex with him. Like, actually on stage. He doesn't quite rape her, but he almost goes there. She's like, get the fuck off of me. She's like, you can't get it up for, like, the two years we've been dating, but you can get it up on stage. Like, what the fuck? And it just speaks to how much of an ego he has, too. Um, But basically, Leslie's very starved for attention. And so is Laura, who's Reagan's girlfriend, who he barely reacts when she says she's pregnant. And they end up, like, having a weird kiss scene backstage afterwards um and edward norton's character sees that and so he's like okay i guess leslie's moved on and she basically tells him to get the fuck out of her life um but he starts pursuing sam who has some really good monologues in this uh she has a really good one where she just tells her dad to stop being such an idiot and be realistic like you don't matter that much she kind of like checks him for his uh ego she kind of checks his ego and she feels really bad about it, but it's like somebody needed to say it. It's kind of like being the Simon Cowell of your family. Somebody's got to tell you. you know? I feel like the monologue you're talking about is what her, got her nominated for the Best Supporting Role for this movie, too. And, yeah, and that even when they introduced her for Best Supporting, they played a clip of that exact monologue. So It's, it's, re- it's really good, and she did a very good, on. everyone did a very good, honest job in this. Everyone was acting very honestly. Nobody seemed like they were acting. I really, it, everybody acts really well. She likes to sit on the roof because she can't do drugs anymore because she just did rehab. And so it's kind of like her thrill ride is to sit on the roof and not actually jump, but she just likes to sit on the roof, which is ironic because of the end of the movie. And um, he and, and her kind of have a very honest conversation about how much of a fucked, fuck up they both are. Like they're both really fucked up people. But they kind of bond and he and her kind of start having a romantic fling and her dad sees it backstage, which why would you make out backstage? I don't think I've ever made out with anybody backstage before. So she starts making out with Edward Norton backstage and her dad sees it and he needs a smoke and then he locks himself out. This is the best scene of the whole movie, in my opinion, is the best scene. And the whole like one shot of everything just, it's a beautiful thing because he gets locked out of the backstage but he has to re-enter for his last scene he (laughs) he's wearing a robe and underwear his robe gets caught in the door when it locks so he has to leave it and basically um he gets locked out he's only in his underwear he's barefoot he doesn't even have the prop gun he's supposed to have and he has to walk through Times square around to the front of the theater and people recognize him because he's a very famous star he's birdman the best part was when he goes into the lobby to enter from the actual back of the theater, um, there's a lady at the ticket booth, and she's like, Sir, you, who are you? You can't go in there! 
And his face is on posters all in the yeah. lobby. And obviously, like, she just doesn't care. She doesn't know who he is because she just works the ticket booth. I was like, that's great. Because, like, half the people know him and half the people don't. And then he finally, like, gets, he just enters from the back of the theater in his underwear. And it's great. I love that scene. And I think it's, it's like, a good scene. I think it's the scene that when people talk, other than the very ambiguous ending, I feel like that's the scene you'll often hear people talk about when they when they talk about this movie. And mm-hmm. I, I, as an afterthought, uh, a few things I love about that particular scene. So there, so what Katie's talking about, Riggins gets into the theater and he doesn't have his he doesn't have his prop gun, so he's using his finger, and he's, he's oh yeah, he's doing this. He's screaming at his at his castmates coming up the aisle, and somebody in the audience laughs, and he actually points the finger gun. He's like, "Shut up!" He points the finger gun at the audience, yeah. <laughs> and I it's lost great. it. The other great thing is when he actually gets up on stage, because the thing that set off this whole chain of events, like Katie pointed out, is that he sees um. He oh sees, yeah, I forgot about that part. Yeah, yeah, and so he actually fucking punches him like <laughs> he slugs edward norton's character in the face he just it's so and he's not supposed to punch him in the play and yeah. i was like oh shit i forgot about that part also props to the stagehand who immediately hands the real gun to him like just a hand comes out and was like here's your gun and he just grabs it i was like that is like Mariah Carey needed that stage hand when her microphone fell out that one time at New Year's Eve. I was like, that is a stage hand who deserves a raise. Good exactly. job, man. And what I love is so it, it takes you, you know, that 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 um that tracking shot takes you to Sack Alphanakis' character who's just watching all. And this was a scene I remember so vaguely, I remember so vividly, vividly in the theater because... Oh, yeah, because the guy who the thing fell on shows up when he's trying to get through the theater in a wheelchair with his lawyer, and they're calling Zach Galifianakis. It's it's a really good scene. Everyone should watch this movie just for that scene. For that scene. But when that phone go, when when I saw this in the movie theater and that phone went off, everyone thinks it's their fucking ringtone. So everyone was like, they were so invested. Like, even myself, I was so yeah. invested in the scene when that tone went off. I thought it was my phone. So I was like, oh, shit. Like, you know? Well, and I guess because I watched it at home, I didn't have that reaction. But I said, that motherfucker didn't turn off his ringer in a theatrical production? Side note for people who aren't theater majors or don't go to the theater. They literally tell you to please silence your phone multiple times. So if you're that person and your phone goes off there in performance, you that is a bad problem. You're... You, yeah. It's, it's, it's just like bad. it's just like at the movie theater if you if your phone goes off or like if you're at church and your phone goes off it's awkward it's really yeah. awkward or just silence it you don't have to turn it off just silence it um this is just a question so you see the same monologue two or three times where he's talking about like what do we think about when we talk about love <laughs> i honestly thought the first time i saw that monologue in the previews was 10 times better than the last time you see it because the last time you see it I thought it was kind of meh I wanted him to comment on it and be like was it my personal best but I guess it wasn't in the script so um that's the only bad thing about doing these long takes it's just like a play like if you fuck up on one part but the other part is so good like it's hard to get that perfect performance I heard one of their camera operators was like it was just like a really confusing dance that everybody had to do and if anybody messed up that just kind of screwed everybody up so I think Emma Stone messed up once she like walked in at the wrong time and they had to start the whole thing over again so I mean I think most of the actors I don't know about Emma Stone because she was a lot younger when she started acting than I think a lot of the people in the movie were but I think most of them have either done theater or started in theater and then I guess Brittany we should probably talk about the ending of this movie which I you know I don't like ambiguous endings but this was one ambiguous ending that I was okay with I actually liked it a lot and I thought it fit because throughout the movie they were ambiguous about you know the magical realism like definitely some things are in his head and he's physically wrecking his office even though Birdman's doing it but then was he really flying I don't think so but he could be so I think you had a theory about the ending though no and there's a lot of so and even like the flying thing um 
So the big thing, and I love that you brought magical realism because that is a perfect term to put to this movie that I didn't think about. Because usually when I think of magical realism, I think about uh, Spanish Spanish literature or Spanish films. But it would make sense that Alejandro would put kind of that kind of stamp on it, which is really yeah. cool. Apparently it's uh-huh. very popular in Spanish-American literature, which yes. again, culturally makes a lot of sense. I, I thought about um, Guillermo del Toro's movie... Um, Pan's Labyrinth, very much magical realism. It's a very realistic, pl- but the, it takes it more like symbolism. And this movie is a lot more fluid in whether or not it is symbolic, but also they give you a choice. Yeah. Which is what I think I really appreciate about it is that, like, you're not going to, like, what I'm going to say People, there's going to be people who listen to this and they're just like, there is no fucking way in hell this is what this movie's about. Um, but like what you're talking about with the flying scene even, you see him land in front of the theater and the cab driver is like, wait, pay me my money. So it's like even that can kind of be disputed. So, you know, it's like right. everything, everything that oh, happened. Which, by the way, by the way, is apparently based on a real thing that uh, Michael Keaton did once. He forgot to be a cab driver once, and they kept it in the movie. I was like, that's funny. And I hope he eventually did pay that cab driver. But go ahead. No, no. I I love it. I love knowing those little, like, kind of stories about it. Um, So this was probably my fourth time watching this movie. And it kind of just struck me. And it's not like a written in stone thing, but it's kind of like my theory about um, I think Riggins is in purgatory. Like, when you sit there as an actor, there is so much things that happens to Riggins that's literally, like, I'm like, this is, like, hell. Like, this is what hell would be like for an actor. Um, And so I even started taking a list of just, like, bad things that happen. Um, So one of the things off off the top of my head is, like, people didn't know, don't recognize his talent. So you see him floating. And you're just, and you know, you see Sack Alvinakis comes in there and it's just like, okay, like maybe this isn't really happening. But then you, he, there's a scene with the reporters that it's even a throwaway scene and the reporters are not listening to him. Like they're interviewing him, but they keep listening to each other and they throw away what he's saying. And she even asked him if he like uses dead baby pigs and he's like, no, I don't like, you know, it's just like all this stuff. Um, So, you know, another actor tells him how to do his job. His girlfriend puts him in emotionally awkward situations, like telling him she's pregnant and trying. Oh, yeah. She tells yeah. him she's pregnant backstage, which, to be fair, he's living at the theater. So maybe she didn't really have another opportunity. And then they kind of have a conversation before he gets locked out in his underwear. And they kind of, like, come to a mature ending of their relationship. So I liked I liked that they were, like, realistic. Like, they were very adult about their relationship. And it's yeah. really puts more emphasis on his ex-wife and him. His wife, who's, is, who kind of serves as this reminder of everything he gave up, is still good to him. Like, that's another thing I was thinking about. She's still good to him. Like, he, and you know, I mean, eventually he tells what happens is that she found out he cheated on her during this huge dinner party they were hosting. But no, despite- I think he cheated on her at the party. Yeah, and at the party. she caught him at the party. Yeah. It was like their anniversary party. And he fucked some girl when they still lived in L.A., and then he tells her, because, okay, so you see this bloated jellyfish on the beach, yeah. the first scene, and then all of a sudden you're like, what the fuck was that? So apparently he tried to drown himself afterwards because he felt so bad about cheating on his wife, and um, a bunch of jellyfish stung him and kept him from killing himself. And until he tells his wife about that, the stakes aren't really raised, and then yeah. all of a sudden everything got real dramatic. I I didn't think that was even an option for him until he had that monologue. I thought he might go crazy, but I didn't think he'd actually kill, like, try to kill himself. Um, and I think that was a good way to introduce it because he wasn't flat out t- confessing that that's what he was planning on doing on stage in front of a bunch of people. But he was trying to be honest with the only honest person he's ever had in his life. Yeah, I think he loves her. And the reason, and of course, like, with, with this being, like, my my third watch, it's like my third or fourth watch of this movie, um, you, you brought the jellyfish. And, and I think that's a very important, so that's kind of what kind of set me off in my head, thinking that Riggin may already be dead. Um, because that's the opening scene, is you see the jellyfish, and you know that was his, that was his near-death experiences with those jellyfish. But then you see, you see the shooting star fading. 
And it could be his stardom fading. It could be the stardom fading, or it could be symbolizing that a life is kind of fading out too. Um, so there's like all these. There's definitely. I think that's a perfectly valid interpretation. It's not how I interpret it, but mm-hmm. I think that's one of the reasons why this movie is kind of fun. Because like for me, I didn't interpret it that way. But at the end, so he basically tries to shoot himself, which. I think the public thinks that he wasn't trying to kill himself, that it was an accident. Because the really bitchy critic writes a a really positive review that's called The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. And I think what she's saying is uh, he was ignorant of the fact that the gun was loaded and him being ignorant gave him a truer performance. But really, I'm pretty sure he was attempting to hurt himself, but he accidentally shoots his nose off. Instead of killing himself, which is good. Um, but then he is seems like everything's great. Like his daughter comes to see him and his ex-wife is there and uh, everyone loves him. He's like a viral video and everything. And then he goes to the bathroom when he's alone. And this is when I started not being happy with the script writing because things started falling apart for me. He goes to the bathroom and Birdman's there peeing on a toilet, which was really funny. Um, and then he's like, fuck you. And then this is like the same thing, like the end of the witch. So he goes and he opens the window. First of all, hospital windows aren't going to open like that. They did this in Arrested Development too. Like you will have an emergency exit, but they're not going to have windows that open, especially in a ward for a person who just tried to commit suicide the day before. Yeah. You're not going to put someone who is on suicide watch in a hospital room where the windows open. Unless it is purgatory. Then who knows? But um, he basically opens the window and then his daughter comes back in and she can't find him. And then she looks out and she starts smiling like he's flying. But they don't actually show him flying. So either he, A, is hiding somewhere or B he jumped out the window or see he jumped out the window is flying or if he's in purgatory he's flying to heaven yeah so and and there is a lot of um so this movie also and what i will tell anybody there's still ideas so big in it i have a hard time wrapping my head around it like for example um the the very magical surrealism scene you know that earlier where birdman's kind of flying through the city he's like yeah give them what they fucking want and you know explosions and all this stuff. Um, it's it's where was I even touching base with this Jesus Christ? Um, but you have those types of star. No, you're That's good. My automatic reaction whenever whenever anyone says Jesus Christ is I say superstar. So if you've never seen Jesus Christ Superstar, you totally watch it. Anyways, but yeah, what were we talking about for the oh, end? Yeah, so we were talking, um, so, like, for example, there's that scene, of course, where Birdman is, um, like, yeah, give them what they want. They want explosions. And it's almost like a monologue to the audience about, like, what we as consumers want. But then it's kind of funny because it's, like, in a way, Riggins, through his, like, um, attempted suicide, almost is, like, giving them what they want. So yeah, I kind drama. Of, like, they want drama. Yeah. I kind of had a hard time wrapping my head around that. So I don't know if, like, Riggins gave into this idea of, like, you know, he was just really giving the audience what they want. I don't know if it was a suicide attempt. But, um, so that's, the, those are yeah. the type of ideas that, are, it's, it's hard for me to wrap my head around the message of it, but it's brilliant. Like, it's brilliant how many yeah. different ways you can interpret it, for sure. It, it gives you a lot to think about, but it also is entertaining enough that if you don't want to think about it, you don't have to. Yeah. You can just take it as face value if you prefer and just be like, that was an entertaining movie. Or you can, like, think about it, you know. And it doesn't, like, I'm going to say, I won't say what happens in Jacob's Ladder. But Jacob's Ladder is very specific with what just happened when they end the movie. And they don't really give you a choice at the end. Whereas this movie kind of just gives you a choice. But gives you a choice in a way that is acceptable, and yeah. he's making a choice to not make a choice. It's like David Lynch. I, I am totally fine with it if it makes sense to have kind of an ambiguous ending. Oh, I was going to say something about the Chekhov's gun. Oh, yeah. If you, if you don't know about Chekhov's gun, there there's a playwright named Anton Chekhov who wrote a bunch of 
good but very depressing place. One of them is the seagull. There's a gun introduced in the first part of the play, the first act, and eventually a character kills himself with the same gun, but he tries to kill himself at the end of the first act and then eventually does succeed with the same gun. So there's a gun introduced, there's a fake gun in the play in this movie, and Edward Norton's character is like, that, you know, we need it because he's, you know, he's trying to direct the play himself. He's like, you really need to change that gun because I can see the orange tip and people are going to know it's fake. And um, so Michael Keaton gets really pissed about it. So you can think maybe he got a real gun to make it look more realistic and thought there were blanks in it. But people don't really do that. I imagine it was very scary afterwards for that character to know, oh, that was loaded. Great. Fantastic. I'm curious how he got that in like a day. But I like that they had a lot of foreshadowing. They had the jellyfish picture. They had the gun foreshadowing. Um, And then the monologue scene foreshadowed him trying to kill himself. There was a lot of really good foreshadowing in this movie. Yeah. That everything seemed to get buttoned up at the end. That's what I I did want to touch on. uh, Two things about the very end. Um, And And the lilacs. Yeah. One other thing I really like is that, you know, the monologue that Katie touched on, um, that he talks about a lot, it's about, it, it's, the, it is, it, it, it's in the play, of course, that he wrote uh, specifically that he's trying to get up, but it's um, the monologue about the, the old couple that are in the crash, and he's like, you know, and the man's only upset because he can't see his wife. I thought it was really interesting that at the end, when we see Regan in the hospital bed, Sylvia, his wife, is in the room with him and he can only see out of the eye holes um and he's yeah. looking at sylvia and of course so that it's a reference to that monologue but it's also the it, it looks like a mask it looks like yeah, it looks like mask. the birdman mask they did a yeah. really good job echoing mm-hmm. that and then his daughter so the first time you see emma stone's character he's like video chatting with her and he wants her i i guess he wanted her to get flowers for him which that's kind of selfish but okay and he wants lilacs because they smell good and she doesn't know what they look like and she ends up just getting him roses which he hates roses and at the end she ends up bringing him lilacs and then he can't smell them because he shot himself in the nose yeah it's very cute it's very i was it was a very sweet moment but i was a little bit i don't know i if he really did kill himself at the end i'm a little disappointed in him after he had that sweet moment with his daughter but if he actually is flying, cool. Yeah, and that's the reason I think I think in in the context of that movie, whether it's purgatory and his spirit's been released, whether it's surrealism and it's really happening, what I like is that. Um, so there is uh, obviously there's tension between Sam and Riggin throughout the entire movie, and of course, like you touched upon, because she believed he wasn't a good father, but she's a lot like her father, and and even I feel like there's even a manifest because you see the tattoos are bird tattoos. Like, she has bird tattoos mm-hmm. on her. Um, I wonder so if that was on purpose or if she just happened to have them and the director was like, we need to show those off because that works for the theme. Yeah, I don't know. exactly. It's, like, really cool. But I always think about, so I didn't, you know, when you're watching a movie the first time, I think you're really just watching for the experience. And then if you go back and watch it yeah. again and again, you kind of pick up on things. And, of course, there's this nice little quote about, like, did your perp- did you serve your purpose on this world and what was it? And it's like, I did. And it was to be beloved. It was to be beloved on this world. And I feel like Regan's kind of self-journey is that he really wants to be famous. Um, famous for something other than Birdman's movie. He's really living for fame. But at the end of that movie, he's really sharing these intimate moments with his ex-wife and with his daughter. And um, and so when he... When when she looks out the window, she looks on the ground and her eyes do not catch anything on the ground. And then she looks right, up. Right. And I think it's a connection that she Riggins is beloved by her. Like he serves his yeah. purpose. He is beloved by her. And I think that's what is echoing that beginning and that ending. It's the way yeah, I kind of yeah. took it. Yeah, and she looks up and smiles. So obviously it's fine. But yeah. Yeah, it is very ambiguous. I'm kind of glad it is because I feel like if you would have seen him flying, it would have been kind of silly at that point. Yeah. So, oh. and unfortunately, I think we've been recording for two hours, so we probably need to wrap it up. Either so, last thoughts. 
back to the Birdman. Um, beautiful movie. Um, I am I'm 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 a big fan of. I will say I feel like this is a movie lovers movie. Um, it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea. Um, like for example, my husband. Uh, he he was not a fan of this movie. Um, he, oh, really? he yeah. Taylor uh-huh. did not like this movie. Um, he didn't like something that else is interesting. The the soundtrack is a lot of drums based. It's a very drum based soundtrack. Uh, that, yeah, that kind I of, both loved and hated that. Yeah, I I like jazz music, but I don't like all drums. And I was a little bit I didn't like it at first, and then when you see the drummer when he's about to go shoot himself, I was like, oh hey there. What's, yeah what's up so it wasn't that bad I don't know I but um I think it worked because it was like a real movie like it was a realistic movie and I think the solo drums worked yeah maybe I don't know I think what's but, kind of I think what's alarming so if you have a moviegoer who really is not like this movie is dialogue heavy there is interesting things that happens in this movie but it's very dialogue driven so i feel like if you were... I didn't feel bored yeah i, I didn't I, feel I bored love and i don't love long dialogues and i'm like i am like a movie lover like and especially like you know doing theater getting your degree in theater obviously i'm going to have kind of a snobbish viewpoint about movies but i I don't feel like I felt bored at all. And I think a lot of it is thanks to the camera work because it is so fluid and interesting. Like you could have just, yes, followed Michael Keaton from his dressing room to the stage and just stopped there. But instead the camera keeps circling the rehearsal. They're sitting at a table and they're just running lines and it keeps circling and circling and circling until like, when the guy gets hit by a light, I didn't even realize he was hit by a light at first. I thought he had, like, something else had happened. I had to rewind it and be like, what the fuck just happened? Like, it is so in the movie. Like, it keeps it so interesting because the camera is always moving. It's hardly yeah. ever standing still. And I think that's what keeps it interesting. And I feel like because everything was moving all the time, because people were doing things while they were talking, it was more realistic and therefore... For me, I'm surprised someone didn't like it because I was like, I feel like anybody could watch this movie and like it because it is like, it's never boring. Yeah. It's not like, I I mean, it's a pretty long movie and it didn't really feel that long. Yeah, it is. I think the runtime is like almost two hours. And and this is what's crazy. So I love this movie. And my husband, uh, he was able to watch it fully with me one time. And he goes, I didn't like it. And then he tried to watch it with me again the other night when I was rewatching it for this uh, vlog. And he... He fell asleep during it. So <laughs> so maybe I'm wrong. I just yeah. assumed everyone would like it. Because I do tend to like... There's a lot of like Oscar bait movies that I tend to get really bored by. And I'm like, why the hell did this win an Oscar? This wasn't that good. Yeah. Um, because I'm cynical. And <laughs> But this movie, like, I was like, I understand. Technically, it was very good. I'm surprised it didn't win editing. Yeah. It didn't win editing for some reason. It won Best Picture, Best Director... Cinematography. And, it, and cin- cinematography? Okay. But I'm surprised it didn't win editing. It won a fourth one. Screen- I can't what, remember. Original screenplay, possibly? Maybe. Yeah. Um, but I- it won, like, four Oscars. But it didn't win any acting, and I was really surprised because the acting is so... I feel like this was Michael Keaton's Oscar performance, and I was kind of upset he didn't win because... Yeah. Uh, has he even won an Oscar yet? I think this was his first time nominated. I feel like I remember reading Which that. astounding, because that man can act circles around other people. I don't think he's ever won an Oscar. I don't understand how Michael Keaton hasn't won. He's won other things, but he's never, I don't think he's ever won an Oscar. No, he's never won an Oscar. He's only been nominated for Birdman. Yeah. Like, he's in, like, every Best Picture movie. Not every, but most movies he's in gets nominated nowadays for Best Picture. And then he just gets screwed over. It makes me so sad. Although yeah. he's won 56 awards out of the 68 he's been nominated for. Maybe he doesn't suck up to the Academy enough. Because it is very political. The Academy Awards is extremely political. Also, often people don't actually watch their screeners. They just pick what their friends pick. Yeah. So, just like politics. Anyways. But, no, not getting into politics at all. But I just, the Academy Awards always make me laugh. Because I'm just like. How has Michael Keaton not won an Academy Award yet? It's the same way that I feel like there's 
So for one, um, as as we look back on, and this is a whole nother subject for a whole nother video, but as we look back on the Academy Awards, um, even there's certain winners in certain years, like for example, the year 1994 is probably the best example of any year where you have Shawshank Redemption, Pulp Fiction, and Forrest Gump winning Best Picture, I mean, nominated for Best Picture, and then Forrest Gump won. And to this day, there's people who are like, Shawshank should have won, or Pulp Fiction should have won. Um, right. Even though Forrest Gump is a great movie. Um, and it I'm sure, a great movie. Yeah. It's a great movie, but a lot of people argue that it shouldn't have been the Best Picture winner that year. And I think with time, there's certain clarity about um, these actors yeah. in, these, in these movies. So, I guess it surprises me with Michael Keaton because he's been around a long time. Yeah. And I'm surprised he hasn't at least won a supporting actor because he's been a supporting character in a lot of shows. And Edward Norton, I don't think, won an Academy Award either. And he's one of the best actors on there. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I and I think they both got nominated for this movie, I want to say. Yeah, Edward Norton was nominated. So did Emma Stone and... I, I'm surprised Amy Ryan, I thought, gave a really great performance, but she, like, never gets nominated for anything. Maybe I'm lying. Maybe she did, and I'm... I, for some reason, thought she did get nominated for an Academy Award before she was on The Office, but I think I was mixing her up with Holly Hunter because their names are Holly. Not really, but she plays Holly Flack and then Holly Hunter, and they kind of look similar, and they're the same age. Yeah. And they're the same, like, type. Yeah, he's had three... Edward Norton's been nominated three times for an Academy Award and still hasn't won. I don't understand that. He's the other two roles. Okay, Primal Fear, American oh, yeah. History X, which I haven't seen Primal Fear. That was what and, uh, like his breakout Birdman. role. And then Birdman. So he's been nominated for, I'm so, American History X was 99. Yeah. I, I thought that was an older movie. 99 was a great year for movies too, so. <laughs> he's only ever won like a SAG and a Golden Globe. He hasn't even won like a BAFTA. Although he's been nominated. That's sad. I really like both of them, and I think they're some of the best. Act- I mean, but just because, just because you're good doesn't mean you're going to get a, an award or a reward. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of good people in the world that don't get rewarded either. So, yeah. but it, I I find it funny that it's just undeniable how talented they are, and yet they have Naomi Watts too has been nominated, and I don't think I she's won. But I'm- Naomi Watts chooses weird stuff. Yeah, she was nominated for The Impossible, and that was an incredible movie. That's one of those movies, if you haven't seen, please go see it, um, because it is incredible. And you, if you're like me, you will cry the, the entire movie. Anyways, I think Birdman's definitely, I'd recommend it to almost everybody. I really don't think, I'm surprised when people say they won't enjoy this movie at least once, because it's not boring. Yeah. And But I do think if you are a theater lover, or you've worked in theater before, or like a film lover, you'll probably appreciate it more because you'll understand what's going on a little more. I feel like maybe if you haven't been backstage before, maybe you wouldn't understand some points in the script, like the stage hands. Like they make one glib. <laughs> uh, I think Zach Galifianakis is like, don't destroy that poster. That's from the union. You don't want to mess with them because famously all the stage hands are in the union and basically the union is backed by the mob. It's like everybody knows, but nobody knows kind of thing. Uh, So, you know, they make all these like little remarks that if you've done theater before, you probably understand it. But if you don't, maybe it would go over your head. Maybe it would be boring for you. I don't know. But I didn't find it boring at all. I also feel like, yeah, everybody's performances are good. And it's an interesting visual style. And literally, like, the camera never stops moving. And I think that was probably, sorry, my chair is like really noisy. Um, I think it's really a good representation of what you can do with films. And it obviously was an incredibly difficult process. And I think that's why everyone is so talented in that movie is because you couldn't have like a bad actor in that movie because it is so hard to do that long of a take without stopping. Especially, like I said, for movie actors, because a lot of movie actors maybe shoot a scene in a day and that's it and that scene maybe is like two minutes long so guys stop don't worry everybody it's just a puppy they're just playing rough stop guys they're just playing (laughs) 
I, they couldn't see them, so oh, you can see a tail now. So yeah, like don't worry, there's no monsters. In oh Brady's yeah, house. yeah, it just sounds like it all the time, but there isn't. Just so. adorable monsters. Yeah, thank you, thank but, you. Yeah, so I think it's a really good movie. I think I'm glad I watched it because again, it's one that I've been meaning to watch for a long time and haven't. And that's yeah. what this podcast is all about: is watching movies you want to watch and maybe getting out of your comfort zone. Um, so I guess we need to figure out what are we going to do next week? Yes. Well, we do have to get the writing. We we do have to give the writing real quick for this movie. Oh, yes. I would, hmm, I would rate it F for flying high. And, and I would have to rate it T for turkey with leukemia, which is. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that was a good line. Yeah. I look like a turkey with leukemia. I'm fucking disappearing. So, I mean, it's Which, let me say, I was watching, I was like, Mark Keaton, you don't look that bad for like a 65 year old dude. You still look like Batman. It's fine. He's actually not super fat. I was like, dude, you don't even have a beer gut. Like, yeah. But if you probably had a six pack, if you probably had a six pack at one time, you're probably for the rest of your life is going to be messed up by having a six pack <laughs> you know you never really saw batman without his shirt there was just That's that true. suit i yeah. mean i don't think i don't think michael keaton had a six oh i don't know i don't want to insult him because i really like michael keaton but i like <laughs> i don't find his batman was an intimidating intimidating his batman was just like suave and debonair and funny and that's why i like yeah. him the best He's the best Batman next to the animated series. And yeah. Mark Hamill's the best Joker, although I really like Heath Ledger and Jack Nicholson. But honestly, the animated series Joker is my favorite Joker. Um, but yeah, so I guess, so definitely recommend this movie if you're an adult, because uh, Edward Norton does have a full on erection on stage at some point. <laughs> that was yeah. probably the most. Inter- I had to rewind it because I was like, did that really happen? I was like, oh, shit. No, that really happened. I was like, I wonder if that was... It looked pretty real, but I wonder if it was real or not. I was like, that would be awkward on stage. And did he have to do that? I'm sure... I, I don't know. I'm I curious. So. I would think so. Oh, poor Edward Norton. That would be really <laughs> embarrassing. They, like, they, I'm just saying, like, that's embarrassing to do on stage. It's like the beginning of the 40-year-old virgin. I was always like, okay, poor Steve Carell. So, um, so we did. So this was Jonathan's recommendation. Thank you again, Jonathan. Um, thank you. And uh, so, guys, of course, we always want you to leave in the comments. If there's anything you'd like us to see us talk about, um, please, please, please feel free to throw it out there. Even if it's really freaking weird, we're, we're, willing, we're willing to take it on. So, um, but Katie, I feel like um, it, is, it should be your turn. What, what do you think we should do? Well, you know, I finally saw Climax, and it's another movie with long takes, so I think that could be a really good one, although it's very uh, serious, but it's very cool. Uh, Climax is a French movie, um, and it's from, I think, 2018, maybe 2019, and there's only one actor in the whole thing. Everybody's, it's about a bunch of dancers who experience a wild night at a dance thing. Uh, so that's a good one. Another good one would be, ooh. I ca- Climax was really good. Climax, I think, is really cool to talk about unless you don't want to do a long take movie twice in a row. No, we can do Climax. Climax is good. Climax is uh, visually very interesting and it has a lot of really cool techniques um it is i will say there's like flashing lights and stuff so if you want to watch it before we talk about it like go with it your own way there's a lot of mature things that happen in it and it's visually kind of disruptive um so real quick where is climax streaming on netflix did i I remember climax is on amazon prime that's how i watched it let me make sure it's still on there, but um, it's by Gaspar Noé. Okay. And it's French, so I may be mispronouncing that. I only know a teeny tiny bit of French. But um, so it does have subtitles, by the way, if you only speak English. So, but it's 
it's kind of like old boy where like the subtitles are important but not as important as the visuals so let me make sure it's still streaming yes it's from 2018 climax yes it's still streaming 2018 2019 um, I don't know. One thing said 2018, one thing said 2019. But Climax, it's an A24 movie, which that's who produced Midsummer and Hereditary. So yeah. automatically, I, I usually like their movies. Um, and it is on Amazon Prime right now. And I guess that's where we'll leave it um, for our session. Yeah. I think this is a good conversation. Uh, and yeah, I don't know. I feel like to sign off i just want to say have a great day stay safe out there and you know push yourselves to the limits and watch the movies you're not comfortable watching you know that's what this is all about definitely definitely we look forward to um talking with you guys next week um feel free to leave comments and our suggestions in the comment section below so yeah thank you guys for for chilling with us tonight and for talking about us for talking with movies if i can speak tonight (laughs) for listening to us movie so (laughs) um have a good night thanks for watching and we'll see you next time bye the grindhouse girls podcast is a production by katie dale and Brittany ray and edited by katie dale all music used is royalty free and will be in our annotations if you have any questions comments suggestions please contact us at contact us at grindhousegirlspod.com or visit our website at grindhousegirlspod.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.